0: Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining Working Culture's Success Stories, where we learn about the professional lives of artists, creatives, and cultural workers. In this podcast, we will hear how people in the arts and culture sector secure employment and the advice they have for those looking for work or hiring. We hope these podcasts will guide you through your professional journey in the arts. Hello everyone, thanks for joining us. Our next guest, Trudy Schroeder, will speak to us about what it takes to be a leader for a performing arts organization during the pandemic. Trudy's career has taken her from arts policy and program development for the city of Ottawa to roles as the executive director of the Winnipeg Folk Festival and the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra. She has been a lifelong learner and an active volunteer on many boards and project groups. In July 2019, Trudy was honored to be inducted into the Order of Manitoba for her contribution to the cultural life of the province. She believes in the importance of a vibrant arts community to create the kinds of communities in which people can live and flourish. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's really exciting that we're talking to you. It's our first time actually recording a podcast with someone outside the province of Ontario. So thank you so much for agreeing to meet with me today.
1: Oh, so I'm very exotic, am I? Outside of (laughs) Ontario is this strange unknown territory. I've actually been to Winnipeg. I
0: was there maybe two years ago. It was during your Nui Blanche, actually. It was really fun. I had a great time and I hope to be back
1: soon. Well, it is a surprising city that way. It's quite culturally dynamic. Like there is a lot of natural creativity here that percolates in just a lovely way. And uh, people, people uh, cooperate and coordinate and uh, collaborate, I think, just very naturally. And and there are remarkable results from that in the in the cultural sector, in in sort of a creativity that uh, that's very refreshing and energizing. And I sort of think of it as a bit of a and d station for cultural development in a broader scale. Do you think that it's that way because it's such a close
0: knit community and that different arts organizations, as you said, collaborate and know one another? Do you get that sense?
1: I do absolutely. We had a meeting this morning, just a number of the arts organizations that have to share our Centennial concert hall. And the, one of the uh, the people from the Royal Winnipeg Ballet was saying that he had worked in Ontario for a long time. And of course, it's wonderful to be working in Toronto. But he said one of the things that happens when each organization, when there are enough resources that each organization can have its own performance venue. And the natural need to collaborate isn't as big. Mm-hmm. But here where it's actually quite remarkable that a city our size has a 67-member professional symphony orchestra and that we have an internationally recognized ballet company and that we have opera and that we have theater on the scale that is produced here. We do that because we are unbelievably good at sort of sharing information and people and contacts and and even donors, it seems, and audience members. And together, we form something that... uh, That's really a pretty interesting microcosm. I know when I first got to Winnipeg, I lived in Ottawa for, I lived in Quebec City and then Cornwall and then Ottawa for a period of time. And when I came here, uh, one of the first projects I did, uh, because I was expecting a baby, uh, and people from Ontario had talked to people that they knew in Manitoba and the people in Manitoba approached me and said, hey, we understand that you've done work on cultural policy work the city of Winnipeg needs to do a review of its cultural policy. Would you take that on? So I did as a consultant. And one of the people I interviewed was the author, Carol Shields, who lived here. She's the writer of the Stone Diaries, which won a Pulitzer Prize and a wonderful Canadian writer. And one of the things that she said that is just so fantastic about Winnipeg is that there's sort of this critical mass of people working in the cultural sector at a very high level there's a critical mass that's sort of big enough that you know that you've got uh, colleagues to speak with and community members to to share ideas with on a grand scale, but where it's kind of far enough off of the beaten path that there isn't the kind of groupthink. It's independent. There's this sense of you have different kinds of ideas because you're not quite as much pulled in the same direction as a as a bigger herd. And I thought her her perspective was really quite interesting. She said she found it so um, energizing and so wonderful to be able to share and connect with so many people. And I have to say, I have Mm -hmm. found the community the same way. You know, just very open, very embracing of people who come prepared to work and participate and give their knowledge and their expertise and their passion to the art. been a good 25 years. So
0: are you not from Winnipeg? Because you said that you were working in Ottawa and then...
1: Well, you know, like many Winnipeggers, I was born here, grew up here, and at 18, I thought, I must see the bigger world. So first, I went on Canada World Youth to uh, Senegal for a year, and then through that, I started learning French, and then I learned about a program where you could go and study not your primary language. The government at that time would give you a grant to go study in a university. So I went to Quebec City and studied music and French for three or four years and then moved to Cornwall, Ontario, because I had met a husband in the meantime and he was transferred to Cornwall and then he was transferred to Ottawa. And then when we started having children, I thought, well, it'd be good to have them close to their grandparents, if at all possible. So we moved back.
0: Oh, nice. At any point when you were starting out, Were you at all aiming to eventually become an executive director?
1: Uh, You know, I cannot say that it was, I mean, there is no exact direct training path to become the executive director of of a cultural institution. But I do remember uh, before I left Winnipeg, I was studying clarinet actually with, with the principal clarinetist of the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra. And I was quite serious about music at the time and thinking about going to music school and that kind of thing. And I started reading books about performers and about orchestras. And then I started, there were it's a very small, I mean, a very small kind of genre of, of executive directors of arts organizations that would write tell-all tales and books after they were finished their careers. And I started reading those, and I can remember being just fascinated by the stories of the people who actually do the groundwork and provide the, the infrastructure on which arts organizations flourish. And I can remember thinking at that time, wow, would it ever be amazing to do work like that? But there certainly wasn't at the time any school or program that would train you to do that. So I just kind of uh, wandered off. And in a way, by circumstance and by passion and by interest, I think, eventually found the right path for myself. Mm -hmm. And That was, in fact, the path that I was supposed to take in my life. But who would have known at 18, right? Right.
0: Actually, it's a great segue to my first question, which is, what is the most rewarding thing about being an executive director for the Winnipeg
1: Symphony Orchestra? I think it depends on the person. And we are all motivated by different things, right? Mm -hmm. And I would say people who are motivated by making a lot of money do not actually flock to this sector. People who are motivated by huge power don't flock to this sector. People who are intrinsically motivated by the power of the arts, like who are in fact real believers in the importance of cultural expression and people communicating with each other to make a better society and to share big ideas and to, you know, to be invigorated and inspired and energized and changed by exposure to great art. They find themselves often to this sector, and, and sometimes they also have organizational skills and, and leadership skills that allow them to move into executive director work. But I think for me and for many of the executive directors that I've met over time, the thing that I find the underlying interest is how do we make these organizations more resilient, more relevant, more essential? more connected to our communities? How do we use these organizations and this art form to in fact make a better world and to to address some of the bigger bigger issues of our societies while also putting people into contact with great masterworks of art, whether they're newly created as we often do at our new music festival or uh, pieces of repertoire from four and 500 years ago, 300, 200. There's this whole canon of great artistic production, that we have the privilege of creating the context in which people connect with it. That is very rewarding. And for me, the biggest satisfaction was to come into an organization that had been massively destabilized for decades and was seemingly virtually always on the brink of folding because there were huge money crises all the time. And I I was able to, over the period that I've been here, You know, provide a period of real stability and growth. So the budget when I arrived it was I think 5.7 million, and now, um, well, I mean it's COVID, but if it hadn't been COVID last year, our budget would have been 11 million dollars. So, you know, essentially doubled the budget, increased the audience, connected with communities, developed programs that connected with different parts of the community that wouldn't normally have access to to cultural programs. So we started a Sistema Winnipeg program. We've done a lot of work with. Many different kinds of cultural groups and individuals and different places within our society people who would not normally have financial access to orchestra work, but also another demographic that needs to be served are the the very wealthy in your society. you know who are the elites and what are the things that you can do within a community that uses an art form to help connect people and make them proud of their community so those are all things that we that we look at it's a, a very broad picture and a very it's a wonderful place to work. Well, you've been there for quite some time.
0: You've been there for 13 years. Is that right?
1: Yeah. 13 years here. And before that, I was the executive director at the Winnipeg Folk Festival for 10 years. Right. So
0: you'd be the perfect person to ask for some advice for someone who is like professionally aiming to become an executive director, because you've been doing this work for two decades now or over two decades. So Mm -hmm. What is some advice that you would share with someone who's looking to have a leadership position in the arts and culture sector for a nonprofit organization?
1: Well, I do think that that leadership is a state of mind. I think we can all make a decision to be to be leaders, no matter where we are and where we are in our careers. I remember in my MBA program, we had a course called the CEO. And. The, the, the prof had a whole bunch of different, you know, chief executive officers from large companies in the community come and talk. And one of them particularly impressed me. He said that attitude of curiosity and of wanting to actually make a difference starts right as soon as you start working. You don't become a leader. You don't become a CEO personality when you are suddenly given the title you start to earn that right from your first days of working. So it's a question of, you know, are you passionate about your work wherever you are? Do you try to make a difference? Do you try to make networks? Mm -hmm. Are you one of the people that actually is a positive force within your organization? Do you seek out and try to improve the culture within your organization? Do you have a care for the whole, Mm -hmm. even though it's very tempting? In many organizations, um, you know that that little group that always sits around complaining about everything and sort of makes fun of people and makes fun of decisions and isn't everybody else stupid? That can be a very, you know, attractive way to spend time and you know have drinks on Friday night and complain about everything in your organization. But I don't think that's the path to positive leadership. The path to positive leadership, as it is in everything, it starts with that daily work. Of actually being a positive person, being a productive person, being a person who actually tries to make your organization, your art form, your connections with the community as good as they can possibly be. And I've always believed that if you do that kind of work and you do that kind of job, and you also have the courage to say yes to opportunities, even though there is no guarantee that things will work out, that's the way you become a leader.
0: Would you say one of the strengths or skills that someone would have is being a motivational person, being that person that can get a group of people in alignment, focused and excited about what they're doing?
1: Well, yes, I think the first job is to do that for yourself. And that's not an easy thing to do, to actually look at your day to day tasks and Mm -hmm. find ways to make them better, find ways to Mm -hmm. make systems improve, find ways to communicate either needs or opportunities within your organization. So it it isn't so much that you're feeling that you, you need to be telling other people how to do things. I don't really think that's so much leadership, at least not in my school of leadership. What I like to do is I like to create environments where the teams that I'm working with have the room and the space and the encouragement to do the very best work that they possibly can. So what I'm doing always is asking myself to do the best work that I can do, but also providing space, not in a direct, not in a command and control kind of way, but in an encouraging and organizational building kind of way, make the kind of space where Very talented, very Mm -hmm. dedicated people can do their very best work. It
0: makes perfect sense, I feel like, especially for an arts organization that's constantly changing and working and adapting. And especially when there's like challenges like the pandemic that come along, you know, you have to be adaptable and open minded, especially towards your team and give them the room to shift and move along with what's happening.
1: Yeah, exactly. And to experiment, Mm -hmm. right? And to try things. And, you know, in arts, we don't have nearly enough money to do this, but we have to give ourselves room to try things and sometimes fail and then try them again with a different focus or a different approach and actually seeing people flourish. You asked me before, what is my greatest satisfaction in this kind of work? I would have to say Bringing people together as part of a team, giving people opportunities, watching them grow and flourish in their work, and then go on and do, you know, all kinds of things in all kinds of organizations. Because, of course, most of the arts organizations we work in don't have enough opportunities or enough different kinds of jobs that most people can't make an entire career in one organization. But your skill set is extremely transferable. You can take what you've learned at the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra and go to the Royal Winnipeg Ballet or go to a an orchestra in another community and you develop that next set of skills. So my greatest satisfaction as a as a manager and as a leader has been to to see the way that, you know, young people that I I work with have been, you know, going on to other kinds of things and and they they often get back in touch with me. I'm I'm always pleased to give people just a a glowing reference when they've done great work in the organizations that I've been in and then I've been so satisfied and so gratified to see the way that they succeed the way that they grow professionally the way that they're making a difference now that is really a great satisfaction in this kind of work.
0: And what do you envision for the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra for the next few years?
1: Well, the the, the vision we've had for the organization for the orchestra is to be essential to our community not just relevant, not just connected, but in one of those parts of the community that that is a glue, that is a connecting point, that is a growing point, that is a an illumination point for so many parts of the community. So, you know, against all the odds, I'd love to see this uh, this orchestra grow. I'd love to see it have improved facilities. We have an arts facility problem, a performing arts facility problem. We have a concert hall that is part of the nineteen sixty seven, you know, the centenary of Canada legacy projects and it is deeply in need of refurbishment. So I'd love to see our orchestra performing in a hall that's that's really great for the orchestra. I'd like to see the arts community in Winnipeg even more connected and a renewed commitment by the by both the city and the province to to fund the arts in a in a better way that give it a, a, a little bit more of a fighting chance. I'd also like to see, I mean, one of the big challenges and opportunities that faces all arts organizations is to, to serve and to connect with and to include and to provide a place, a home place for a, a much more diverse society. For new communities in Winnipeg, certainly working with the Indigenous community to connect and to do better work, to make better opportunities, to celebrate the background and culture. We've done a whole bunch of things over the past 13 years that I've been here, but there's there's much more to do there's much more to do
0: Now Trudy, I thought of interviewing you because I came across your posting through our working culture job board for the, the executive director position and I thought it would be interesting just to hear from you on the changes that are happening for the orchestra during the pandemic and what kinds of strategies you're building along with your team to see that vision happen?
1: Well, I mean, the pandemic is one whole question and, and transition is another one. And, and uh, you know, it's a great opportunity. I mean, the, the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra is a wonderful organization. And as executive directors, I mean, the thing about these jobs, unlike if you started your own company, mean, we don't own these companies. When you're the executive director here, yes, you are. You have a leadership position. You have a a responsibility. But essentially, you're a trustee. You're a part of that organization's history for a period of time. You have a responsibility to protect it and nurture it and grow it and sustain it over the time that you're there, knowing as well that if you've done your job properly it will be in a stronger position when you hand off that role to another person who will you certainly hope be able to work with what you've done and continue to develop and grow the organization so i've been here 13 years that is actually the longest that any person has been in this particular role in the 73 years of our history so the thing is that that these positions do change There is a natural period and rotation and a handoff of the role to the next person to take it on. And you hope that the search committee will do a good job at finding someone who will be a good fit for the organization and a good fit for the community and a good fit for the art form. That's not an easy task. You often see organizations make exactly the wrong choices. When that happens, there's a lot of turmoil in organizations because sometimes boards They're coming with their own background and their own history. And sometimes they haven't taken quite enough time to understand the arts community. And of course, they're in a trustee role as well. And they do as well as they can with the information that they have. But as we've seen in many Canadian cultural institutions, big mistakes can be made. And boy, it puts the organization as a whole under a lot of pressure when that happens.
0: Would you say then that's why it's so important to have a succession planning strategy along with like an
1: onboarding strategy and if so what does that look like for you yeah you need you need to have a succession strategy you need to give yourself enough time to do a search that can result in a good fit and to keep going if you you know if you haven't found quite uh, quite the right fit quite the right person quite the right skill set sometimes you can be surprised by the people that actually Uh, succeed massively in these roles and the people that are spectacular, spectacular disasters, shall I say. And unfortunately, there are enough of those that you sometimes wish that there were a better predictability of success in these roles. It It is not easy work. And you have to be adept at so many different things. All of the usual CEO functions, plus you have to be able to work with government and government granting bodies to actually address that whole public sector role. And then you also have to be committed to and good at and able to do fundraising as well. So you're sort of operating three different kinds of organizations at at the same time. The part that's selling tickets and creating a product that you want people to, to purchase. And uh, the kind of product and services and programs that you want donors to feel passionate about. And also the kinds of services and community connection that the public sector is looking for as well. Each of them are really quite distinct. And I don't know any executive directors, any successful executive directors, who aren't adept at understanding and generating uh, success in all three of those areas. And. What would you say is the onboarding
0: process going to look like for the new executive director that comes in?
1: Well, the plan is that they will identify the candidate and that that I will be involved in the onboarding process. As most arts organizations do, I have really quite a splendid uh, senior leadership team. We do a lot of collaborative work. I mean, there there are enough clues and systems and ways that we do things that, that a person will not uh, easily be able to lose their way entirely. There are seasons that we do different parts of our work and different parts of our planning work, different parts of our selling work, different parts of our fundraising work, different parts of our government grant work that, that form kind of a natural cycle that, that is almost a training program in and of itself. It's not as though you come to a position like this in a 73 or 74-year-old organization and you have to reinvent everything. You you, you absolutely don't. Much of what we do works. There might be ways over time Mm -hmm. that another person will want to change and adapt and push in, in new ways. And that is fantastic. It tends not to be a great idea right when you're brand new with an organization to completely change it around because Oddly enough, there are reasons that that organizations do things the way that they do, and there usually is, even if it seems goofy to begin with, there usually are good reasons for the way that things have evolved and the way that things are done. Not to say that they can't be uh, transformed over time, but it it usually isn't something that you need to do. You don't have to, you know, transform the organization in your first hundred days is all I can say.
0: Do you see that transitioning period being impacted because of the the pandemic or how this time could change the way we do things especially for the performing arts and what challenges or or ideas or new visions that someone would have to think about in a leadership
1: position well i think that there is no doubt that this is a very delicate time for the performing arts. I mean, we have been very hard hit in this pandemic. It, of course, goes against all of the main things that we do, which is gathering people. And even we, we, we have just uh, made the decision yesterday to reschedule the concert that we were supposed to do on Saturday. We've been working with different smaller groups of the orchestra all year, but we've been expecting that by this point in the year we would be able to have slightly bigger groups because we thought the pandemic would be a little bit more under control. So, we had a program set for 40. We just still don't have people in the audience, but we've become quite good at live streaming. But even 40, when you think of 40 people, uh, you know, sort of 15 of whom are madly blowing away into wind instruments or brass instruments for 90 minutes in a row, it, it becomes actually the feeling of probably not a totally safe thing to do under the situation where the, the variants are, have become a much more significant factor. So I, I guess any person coming into these roles right now would have to be unbelievably adaptable, um, courageous, willing to see new opportunities, a very good advocate for the art form with the public uh, sector. That advocacy role, I think, will be will be really big, both in terms of you know, communicating the value, there will be so many stresses on our society. I mean, we, we are just in the middle of this whole pandemic battle, I would say. We've sort of gone through a first couple of phases, but I, I don't think the full extent of the economic fallout has hit our society yet, has hit our communities, has hit our cities, and has hit our governments. I mean, a lot has been expended to prop many things up so everything doesn't collapse right right away. But there there, there will also be a time of reckoning and uh, significant hardship and need to, to try things in new ways, perhaps to make adjustments to your organization, whether on a short term or a longer term. There will be needs to plan in extremely adaptable ways. I mean, for this year, we had basically three plans and we kept adapting the the artistic program was adjusting virtually every week. I mean, we looked the other day at the season brochure that we had prepared for the season that we thought would be our 2020-21 season. And really, nothing that we said we were good, we didn't do anything that we said we would do.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Do you think think that that's going to be a trend moving forward for the performing arts that in the past... Everything was set maybe a year, two years in advance of what the scheduling of what's gonna be happening for subscribers and you know, have everything planned out long ago and now it's more like changing things and tweaking things on the go. Do you think that's gonna be something that's
1: gonna stay? Well, really, I, I would wish actually that a certain element of that would. I, I can absolutely see why it happened. Your guest artists, I mean, they're they're booking a long way out and it, it takes time to plan financially. But there is something really quite wonderful about realizing who is there or the types of programming that might respond to needs. So, for example, this year we were able to adjust our programming very quickly to really reflect Black Lives Matter and to, to do much more work with women composers or Parts of, of, of our, our programming that haven't really seen the light of day before, because you're planning so far in advance and the financial needs and who's going to buy tickets is so much dictated by a standard canon of classical works and and, and guest artists who are very much in demand three years out and you're just planning. And really, there is something delightful about being able to respond quickly, to be able to adjust your programming and your guest artists. and and the entire flavor of your season based on sort of real time, I hope somehow the lesson and the beauty of some of that sticks with the sector for a long time. I think, for example, that live streaming as well, which has been, I would say, cost prohibitive for most orchestras for a, a long time, has given us some other real windows into into lengthening people's ability to, to be connected with their orchestras so in our case, older people who were feeling comfortable going to concerts in, in the concert hall and leaving on snowy evenings to, you know, win slippery conditions and that sort of thing. And people who go and spend their their winters in Florida and people who have lived here or or who are family members of orchestra members have been able to participate in our concerts and see what their orchestra is doing, even though they might be in Florida or Mexico or wherever they are you know, there have absolutely been some wonderful things Mm -hmm. about the way we've been able to work this year.
0: I love that. Yeah. I I think I certainly would appreciate that having access to art that is more responsive and innovative because it speaks to the audience more in that
1: way. It does. I mean, it, it can. There is a value to both, right? So, so, for example, for May 8th, we were expecting to have uh, James Ennis here. Uh, James Ennis was born in Brandon. He's one of, you know, the great violinists in the world. But he, he's a Manitoba guy, and we, we were planning to end our season with him. And against all the odds, we were still hoping that he would be able to come here on May 8th. Well, he is supposed to be in Montreal the week prior, but now, I mean, if he has to come here and do two weeks of quarantining, this will absolutely not work. And and with artists of that type or certain types of events, whether it's, you know, where you need many, many players and you're going to do a, a sort of, a, you know, one of those massive big works like Benjamin Britten's uh, War Requiem, right? I mean, it's a fantastic... Uh, work, but it it requires huge forces and soloists and choirs and boys like they're all whole raft of things, and you can't pull that off on the spur of the moment. But having a certain part of your programming open to more flexibility, I think, would be a good thing coming out of this. So you, maybe you have some pillars that you build into your season, and then you have some things where maybe one work is chosen, but that there's some flexibility uh, with perhaps um, the overture or, or the symphony that you're going to do without the soloist. Or there are opportunities here for us to adjust and adapt and, and perhaps become on a regular basis a little bit more adaptable. That would be good. Mm-hmm. Now, in your bio, it says
0: you feel that it is important for a community to have access to top quality live music experiences. What do you see happening for yourself professionally to ensure that that exists?
1: Well, I, th- I think certainly I remain very committed to the sector. I've been, I've been working in this field for a long time, and I want to be able to use my skills and my contacts and my knowledge and my history to encourage in the field to do project work, perhaps, or, or some of the, the connect the dots pieces that have never been quite good enough. Or some facilities work. So how do I see that happening? You know what? I've always thought of all of our cultural organizations. We've got almost a dual responsibility. We have the responsibility to bring the best in the world, the most inspiring things we can possibly find and afford, to bring those to our community. Like so that within our community, there is the possibility to go and see Itzhak Proman or to go and see Don Upshaw or to go and see. Yo-Yo Ma, right in your own community, this is part of the responsibility role. But on the other side of our responsibility role, we have a responsibility to always be seeking to nurture local talent here, starting at every level, to find those bright lights and to give them their first stage. So James Ennis had his first performance with a professional symphony orchestra, was with the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra as it was for Andreana Touchman, who's a a wonderful soprano making, you know, waves around the operatic world and Tracy Dahl and various, you know, various instrumentalists of of, of every type uh, and soloists. And so our job is to nurture the talent that will in fact become great talents for the benefit of the whole artistic world. And it's also our job to bring the best of the world there. So if you can see what it is, it's both building and it's presenting. And that's a very interesting dynamic and always being aware that all of us, I mean, all Canadian orchestras, actually all Canadian arts organizations, uh, art forms of all types, we are all connected to an international world of art. There are international standards for the performance of art. Our job is to do the best that we possibly can within our communities to present art that is on a standard that that reflects well for the art form, to advocate for the for the future of that art form itself for both the history of the art form but also for new production these are all all the, living art forms so in Winnipeg we have the New Music Festival which is a very dynamic it's one of the best showcases of Canadian newly composed work as well as the best of new music from around the globe and continuing to push the art form into what, what will be the next iteration of the use of this, of this instrument, which is a, a symphony orchestra. So it's, it's lovely work. It's, it's challenging and I, I, I certainly expect to be engaged in this. I've never been a person who's been dreaming of retirement per se. That hasn't been I just I, I like working. I like solving problems. I like meeting with people. I like, I like making a difference. I like connecting with my community. And I, I don't if for one second expect that that will stop. And I certainly hope that I'll be able to remain in ways that are appropriate and uh, engaged with the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra to help and to uh, be the best cheerleader ever.
0: That's wonderful. How can our listeners learn more about the orchestra, even maybe connect with you to see where you're going next or what amazing things you're going to be doing next for the arts sector?
1: Well, um, our website is a great is a great resource. So, wso.ca, and you can connect to me through our website. There's a place where you can send a message. It goes to our communications department, and they forward on to me, and then I will respond. So, if people want to uh, have some questions about about careers in this area, I'm always happy to talk. I really love mentoring, you know, young young people who are considering, or young, or even middle aged, or older people who are. In a situation where they're looking at this kind of work, or if they have questions about what I've done or my approach to uh, to leading an arts organization, I am very happy to speak with them. And even once I'm no longer here, the, the communications department will be very pleased to forward it on to my uh, to my personal email.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much, Trudy, for taking time to speak with me. I really enjoyed our discussion, and I hope to visit again Winnipeg soon once we're able to travel and I'll certainly look out for what's coming up next uh, for the orchestra. Yes, we'll try
1: to come try to come at the new music festival time at the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra. It's also a time when Winnipeg really has learned how to embrace its winter and have started to use the river, the frozen river, the very long frozen river as. I mean, it's almost like those old paintings. I don't know if you saw, have seen those those Bruegel paintings of, of sort of life in the Netherlands when there were just all these, you know, people having parties and events mm-hmm. out on the ice when there would be ice on the, on the river. And, and Winnipeg has become a bit like that: restaurants on the river and warming huts and long skating canals and the new music festival and dance and a theater festival all at the same time. It's pretty spectacular, really. Lovely.
0: Yes, I hope to be there soon. (laughs) Fingers crossed. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Working Culture's Job Board Success Stories. For more information on other Working Culture resources, please visit our website, workingculture.ca, and subscribe to our newsletter to receive Job Board updates, news, and trends. Join us for our next episode or contact us at info at workingculture.ca to share your success story. Thanks so much, everyone.